the rest of us are going to continue on with our worship by looking at some heavenly worship. And so you, if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to join me in looking at Revelation chapter 7. It's easy to find. The last book of the Bible, we're going to look at a glimpse of heavenly worship in Revelation chapter 7. And we're going to look specifically at verses 9 and 10 this morning. And so let's go ahead and look at Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10, a great glimpse of what worship looks like in heaven. Verse 9 reads, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude, that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is an extraordinary declaration. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. This morning what we're going to do is talk about what that means. What does it mean for salvation to belong specifically to the Lamb? What does that mean? What is that about? And so we're going to answer that question and we're going to look at that from different aspects so that we might hopefully, by God's grace, be provoked like these folks in heaven are provoked. You see, they see Jesus for who He is and what He's done, and it provokes praise. It elicits praise. It demands praise and worship because they see Him for who He is. And so as we answer that question, what does it mean for salvation to belong to the Lamb? We're going to answer it in six different ways. We're going to answer it in its immediate context. We're going to answer it by looking at the broader context of the book of Revelation. We're going to answer it, that question even by looking elsewhere in Scripture. What does it mean for salvation to belong to Jesus? And what are the implications? How does that relate to us? It should provoke us to worship. And that's what we're going to do this morning as we look at the details of that particular text. Question, uh, excuse me, number one. What does it mean? Answering it with the, the first answer. What does it mean for salvation to belong to the Lamb? Number one, it belongs to the Lamb by eternal decree. By eternal decree. Big words, yes. Big ideas, yes. We haven't even had lunch yet. And we're talking about things like eternal decree. But I think it's a good way of describing one of the ways that salvation belongs to the Lamb. Before time began. Before time began, God decreed, God purposed that Jesus would be the Savior. That He would save His people from their sins. It didn't just start in Bethlehem. As vital as Bethlehem is, we need to know that Bethlehem is the outworking of a plan that is an eternal plan that existed pre-Genesis 1. By eternal decree, salvation has belonged to Jesus. It's a staggering thought, again, especially in the morning. But it's the kind of thought that elicits praise, that provokes us to want to praise Him. 
He's not a plan B savior. He's an eternal savior. The Alpha and the Omega, Revelation twenty two thirteen. The one who is in the beginning, John 1, verse 2. There are three texts of Scripture I want to draw your attention to outside of Revelation chapter 7. Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 3, and 2 Timothy chapter 1. You can look up one of those, you can look up none of those, you can look up all of those, but I'm going to reference Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3, and 2 Timothy, all helping us to understand that the Lamb is the Savior, not as an afterthought, but by eternal decree. The God who is the one true and living God had a purpose, had a plan in eternity past. It's no wonder that salvation would belong to Him. Because in in a sense, it's always belonged to Him. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9 says that God saved us. Listen carefully. It's extraordinary. And called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose, or, or you might say decree, and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus, here you go, before the ages began. This is a reality before the ages began, before time as we know it began, this is how it was going to be. It's no wonder that people in heaven who understand this better than we do, can't not help themselves, if you will. They're provoked, they're moved, because they're understanding like never before, and I hope we get a little bit better understanding of it today, that this is who He is. It's who He has been. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 11 says that this was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Once again, Bethlehem is vital. We need Jesus to come here. We need Jesus to do all of the things that He did when He was on earth. Absolutely. But we need to understand that there's so much behind that if we're going to understand just what it would mean for salvation to be His. It's been His, if you will, for a long, 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 long time. And it's unfolded. It's revealed in history as we know it. And then Ephesians 1. It seems like we've been in Ephesians 1 a lot. Maybe not on Sunday mornings, but on Sunday nights and theology for breakfast. I kind of live in Ephesians 1 because it's so, I'm going to use the word who knows how many times today, so provocative. Paul, Paul's provoked. Paul can't, if you will, help himself. He's praising God because he's, he's beginning to, to focus and he's, he's unpacking the, the complexities of, of eternal decree. And when you come to realize that this is God's extraordinary plan that's existed in it from eternity past, you just can't help yourself, if you will, but to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, like Paul does in Ephesians 1.3. In Revelation, and the folks in heaven, glorified state, they get this. I just want us to get it a little bit better so that we find ourselves not even being able to contain ourselves and doing what we might not otherwise do because it might not be comfortable and we might be loud like they are in heaven, because they're provoked. How about Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4? Even as He chose us, all of this is part of His praise, part of His worship in light of verse 3, but in verse 4, even as He chose us in Him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world, 
That's eternal decree talk. That, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. That's decree talk again. To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose. Again, it goes back to that eternal purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose, decree talk, right, of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. More decree talk. Salvation belongs to the Lamb because it's belonged to the Lamb for a long, 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 long time. Don't think small about Christ because that's not who Christ is. He is the one who by divine design in eternity past is the Redeemer. And to the degree that we can stop thinking about Jesus in a small way, we'll find ourselves provoked to worship in something other than a small way. Who is Jesus Christ? The way you answer that question will have a direct impact on your response. If your response is yawning, and your response is utter reservation, you just don't know who He is. But again and again and again in so many different ways, we're told who He is. He's the Redeemer who didn't just come according to plan B. He's the one to whom salvation belongs because it was purposed that He would be none other than the Lamb. And all the Baptists said, Amen. You're not very good Baptist, but someday, someday, It's extraordinary. Praise be to Him. Let's keep learning about heavenly worship. What does it mean for salvation to belong to the Lamb? It belongs to the Lamb because He earned it. It belongs to the Lamb because He earned it. Salvation belongs to Him because He earned salvation. And if you earn something, something belongs to you, right? I earned it. It's mine. Well, Jesus could say that. I earned it. Salvation belongs to me. I can do with it what I want to because I earned it. He purchased it with his life. How about Revelation chapter 5 verse 9? So closer context and actually in the book, but Revelation 5 9 helps us to see this. We should know this anyway if we're reading much of the Bible at all, but Revelation 5 verse 9 is helpful. It says in verse 9, And they sang a new song, more heavenly worship, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. That's, that's work. He gave Himself up for us. You were slain. And by your blood, that's the shedding of His blood, that's His work, that's His effort, that's His giving up of Himself. By your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
It's one of the passages, that, and there are so many of them, that cause me to love to say, sometimes for shock value, salvation most certainly, most absolutely, without any shadow of a doubt, is by works. It absolutely is by works. It's based upon the works of Christ. Absolutely, salvation is only by grace, not of works, that any of us should boast, right? But we boast in Him. We worship Him because salvation is by His works. And that should be a no-brainer to us as Christians. But sometimes we, we so repeat the mantra, if you will, the good mantra, if you will. That seems like a contradiction in terms, but you know what I mean. Grace alone, faith alone. Christ alone, right? It's not based upon Christ's happy thoughts that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone in the finished Work of Christ alone. And I realize, I'm just giving you the obvious here, but sometimes the obvious is what we forget. It belongs to Him because He earned it. We have to remember that. We have to remember that. Indeed, Titus 3, 5 says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So we're, we're born anew by the power of the Spirit, but we wouldn't have the Spirit if it weren't for the next part in verse 6, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Because of the work of Christ, we have the Spirit that gives us life, so it is of grace to us. But make no mistake about it, it cost Him something. He earned it. Therefore, we have heavenly worship, worshiping Him because it belongs to Him. It's His. It's awesome. It's an awesome reality. Romans 5.8, Christ died for us. That's a work. Hebrews 12.2, He endured the cross. That's a work. Matthew 3.15, He did what He did to fulfill all righteousness. That's a work. He kept the law for us. I love the way R.C. Sproul puts this. Ultimately, the only way one can be justified is by works. We are indeed justified by works, by the works that justi- but the works that justify us are the works of the second Adam. To be justified by faith means to be justified by faith in the works of Christ. Our faith is not the ground of our justification. Faith serves as the instrument by which we receive the benefits of the works of Christ, the sole ground of our justification. I want to reemphasize a statement that he makes there where he says, our faith is not the ground of our justification. You think that, that might be a little too theological for me. It's not really complex at all. Our faith is not the foundation. Our faith is not the ground of our salvation. The work of Christ is. Faith is important because we trust in Him. But faith is not what we're trusting in. But too many times, because we're sloppy, because we're lazy, because we've heard it said in other ways, because we're not really thinking, and we're cutting ourselves off from really having that provokedness to worship, we think salvation is by faith, meaning the ground of our faith is faith. The ground of our salvation is faith. Salvation is by the works of Christ. 
the instrument of application, if you will, is faith. We're trusting in Him. Salvation belongs to the Lamb because He gave Himself to earn salvation for us. Isn't it good? To the degree we're grappling with these things, we, we find ourselves a bit more heavenly minded, uh, a, a bit more like those who, who are no longer uh, enslaved to misunderstandings and confusions and they're glorified and so they see Him as the one to whom salvation belongs. And I'm just hoping that we can learn from that and find ourselves a bit more sanctified, a bit more worshipful, if you will. It's kind of interesting. Some people are so bothered by the fact that salvation is by the works of Christ that I just feel bad for them. It's probably revealing of our human hearts that we always want a peace. I never thought I'd see the day people I know offended by the fact that salvation is by works, by the works of Christ. What Christian doesn't believe that? something in me that wants it to be me. I want my faith to be the ground of my salvation because then it's something I am accomplishing. Let's just go back to the basics, everybody. Let's go back to the basics and, and acknowledge what Christians have always acknowledged. He gave Himself up for us. He fulfilled all righteousness. He was raised on our behalf for our justification. It's all Him. Maybe one reason why our worship doesn't look so heavenly is because we don't think salvation is by works, by the works of Christ. But it is. It belongs to Him. Number three, what does it mean for salvation to belong to the Lamb? It belongs to the Lamb because He accomplished the otherwise unaccomplishable. He accomplished the otherwise unaccomplishable. We're going to see this in Revelation chapter 7. I stand before you today as someone who, on my own, is spiritually unclean. I stand before you today who, on my own, I stand before you as someone who is spiritually filthy. That's my politically correct way of saying it's true of everybody, but I'm just using myself. Okay? And the Bible says, all have sinned. I'm not acceptable before God on my own. No one is. And we get confused sometimes because we forget our Bibles and we forget and we start thinking, well, and we start hearing people say, even Christian celebrities, well, you know, God knows your heart. That's the problem. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is the problem. It's desperately wicked. Jesus himself is the one who said it's not what, what goes into you that makes you dirty. It's what comes out because it's in your heart that is dirty. And so, maybe I want you to think about this. Have you ever thought about the fact that apart from Christ, redemption, salvation, being spiritually clean is impossible? It's unaccomplishable. And you say, that's depressing. It is. But at least now you know you have the illness. And if you see Christ for who He is, the one who accomplishes the unaccomplishable otherwise, you'll worship Him. 
Because he does what cannot be done for us, and that is to take our spiritual filthiness and make us white. Look what it says describing that whiteness in verse 9. In verse 9, partially through the verse, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. That's, that's against everything that would describe human beings on their own elsewhere in the Bible. They're there symbolically with white robes. They're not filthy. They're clean. They're ready to meet the king. They're in his presence and they're pure. This can't be. Well, it can be if Jesus is the Savior. But apart from him, it can't be. Verse 13 says something similar. Who are these? Clothed in white robes. How did that happen? It happened because Jesus is the one who accomplishes the otherwise unaccomplishable. He makes the robes white. Because on our own, our robes aren't white. Isaiah is helpful in helping us to understand this. If you want to see it from a different perspective, and so much of the book of Revelation is influenced by even uh, things and images like that from the Old Testament, for example, Isaiah. I want to go to Isaiah and look at three passages. You can go there if you'd like. You don't have to go there. But I'm going to go to Isaiah 1, Isaiah... Well, we'll start in Isaiah 64... We'll start with most depressing so we understand the problem first. Uh, Isaiah 64, Isaiah 1, and then Isaiah 53 because it's a well-known passage. This is going to help us appreciate all the more what it means to have salvation being what belongs to Jesus because He does what can otherwise not be done, which causes us to worship Him. Isaiah chapter 64, this is all of your life verse, just so you know. Um, everybody wants to have a life verse and claim as your life verse. Here's your life verse. You're going to want this uh, on your next birthday cake, I'm sure. Um, just how, how do you describe yourself? <laughs> well, apart from Christ, here's how we describe ourselves. Um, time to bust out the spiritual Prozac and Zoloft after this, I know. But look what it says in verse 6 of 64. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. I don't know about you, but I don't like that verse very much. Notice it's all inclusive. God knows our hearts and our hearts are dirty. That's the bad news. It's awful. It's awful. So how do we go from symbolically dirty robes because of spiritual defilement to clean robes? Isaiah helps us. Isaiah helps us to know how to do that. Isaiah 1. Let's go to Isaiah 1. We kind of get help and we kind of don't get help here. It's kind of a trick. Okay? Kind of tricking you. It's all going to help us better appreciate Revelation chapter 7 and salvation belonging to him because he does the otherwise undoable. Isaiah 1 verses 18 to 20. The way you read these verses probably tells a lot about you. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are like, though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. That's that. I mean, that, that's what we want, right? That, that's what we need. That, that's the very thing we need because we want to be acceptable by God. We want to be ready to meet the king. Then verse 19 says, 
if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's what we want. That, that, that's how to do it. Just, just be willing and obedient. Just be willing and obedient and you'll have white garments. Now there's more to be said, but just at face value right here, let's just at least see that. If the Israelites just do the right thing, then they'll be good. Everything will be fine. And so their typical response is, we will, we will. And sometimes if we're honest, that's how we read our Bibles too. Oh, oh, I, you mean I just, you just have to do the right thing. I'll just do the right thing and then God will accept me and, and then I'll have a white garment and I'll be acceptable before Him. It's kind of interesting. The next verse, verse 21 says, how the faithful city has become a whore. Oh, no. I don't like Isaiah very much. At least on one level. I, I don't want to have my devotions in Isaiah. I don't know about you. I mean, worse would just be Ezekiel. Or maybe Jeremiah. I want to have my devotions in Second Nephi. You know? You've been saved by grace through faith after all you can do. I like Second Nephi better. But that's not a Christian scripture. Garments are defiled. If I do the right thing, it'll take care of the filthy garments. What's the problem? Got a mirror? <laughs> what Isaiah does is help us, helps us to see that we need someone outside of ourselves. In order to get the clean garments, we need someone outside of ourselves as a substitute to earn it for us to do the right thing for us, right? I chose Isaiah 53 because it's well known, but we could look at other Isaiah passages. But let's go to Isaiah 53. When you look at the whole of Isaiah, you look at one verse here, two verses there, it's probably pretty confusing. But the whole perspective in Isaiah 53 is so well known, you'll, you'll know it as I read it. Verse 5, I'll just choose one verse. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we were healed. Ah. Okay. What's going what's gonna to take away the defilement? What's going to take away the guilt? What's going to make us pure? What's going to make us ready? What's going to make us acceptable before God? What's going to make peace between us and God? We've got to have the white robes. Christ's work provides the white robes. And now as we go back to Revelation chapter 7 and we look at a verse like verse 14 and we read these words, we better appreciate they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now things come together. How do I get a white robe that's a dirty robe? I need to wash it in the blood of the Lamb which is a symbolic way of saying you've got to trust in Christ who is the substitute. All of this is a long way around better appreciating what it means for salvation to belong to the Lamb. It belongs to Him because He accomplishes the otherwise unaccomplishable. So good. So good. 
through his vicarious atonement, through his works, his shed blood, coming freely to us, but it was anything but free to him. Again, I'll ask you to consider the utter and absolute impossibility of salvation. It just just can't be accomplished. Be obedient. Well, I, I, I don't. It's utterly and completely impossible apart from Christ. It's why we worship Him. It's why heaven is provoked to worship Him. It's extraordinary. Belongs to the Lamb. What does it mean for salvation to belong to the Lamb? Number four, it belongs to the Lamb and therefore belongs to those who belong to God. It belongs to the Lamb and therefore belongs to those who belong to God. Might seem a little confusing right now. I don't think it will be once we go back to verse 10. Back to Revelation 7.10. Notice two really important words. Salvation belongs, we've been focusing on the Lamb, but salvation belongs to, here are the two words, our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation belongs to our God. In what sense is God our God? Well, certainly not in the sense He's our God as in we possess Him and He does what we want. You know, that's my car. It's my house. It's my whatever. What does it mean then? Salvation belongs to our God. What's that about? Well, that's about a long, long, long track record of meaning. Starting way back in Genesis. We'll look at Genesis 17, but starting way back in the Old Testament, when God called Abram, to make him his people, if you will. And as God would call out the nation of Israel and make them his, God would make a covenant with them. God would swear an oath, if you will. And God would commit to being their God. That there would be intimacy. That there would be a unique relationship. A special kind of relationship. Again, a covenantal kind of relationship, a loyal kind of commitment that God makes to His people. Genesis 17, 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you through their generation for an everlasting covenant to be God to you. So we're on to something. And to your offspring after you, verse 8, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And here we go. I will be their God. It's that loyalty language. It's that covenantal language. I'm going to be your God. You're my people and I am your God. And there is fidelity and there's commitment I'm the sovereign, we're not peers. But make no mistake about it, I'm your sovereign. I will care for you. I will keep my word. I will keep my oath, which is covenant language. 
which then makes it so extraordinary. Salvation belongs to the Lamb and to our God. And how can He be our God? He can become our God if we have atonement through the Lamb. But I want you to see and think and contemplate with me the reality of God being our God. The good and long history of that statement. He's our God. He's not like the gods of the nations. Let's go plant a tree, grow a tree, cut down the tree, whittle that tree that we cut down and paint it to look perhaps something like us, and then let's bow down and worship the tree. And let's have gods of this and gods of that, and let's appease this kind of God and that kind of God, and we'll have many, many, many gods that don't do anything. And here, God reveals Himself early on again as the great I Am. Yahweh. The great I am, the one true God, the self-existent God, the God who is not like any of the other gods. And he commits, he covenants, he, he swears an oath, I will be your God. You'll be my people. And you say, but that was the Old Testament, that's Israel, that has nothing to do with our passage, that has nothing to do with us. Want to bet? In our very passage, in our very passage, In verse 9, do we not see that it's not just the Jews, but it's every nation? Oh, we most certainly do see every nation. Not to mention the fact that even in that original promise with Abram, there's extension to all the nations. Genesis 18.18, Genesis 22.18, we move to the New Testament, Galatians 3.16, Galatians 3.8 and 9. I just want you to appreciate and, and see that for God to say and for salvation to belong to the one who sits on the throne to our God. It's bigger than we probably realize because it's loaded with Old Testament baggage, good baggage. Covenant faithfulness. God oaths to be our God, to take care of, to provide for, to oversee, to fight for. And as you might know, we move forward and we don't only have the covenant made with Abraham. There's more built upon that. And then we find ourselves today celebrating the Lord's Supper and we'll hear the words. The blood of the covenant. The covenant in my blood shed for you. New covenant talk which should be a reminder to us if we're just thinking more holistically, more biblically in a greater sense, He's our God. Because that new covenant is for us. He's our God. To defend us, to protect us, to guide us, to care for us. Salvation belongs to the one who sits on the throne. Our God. Our covenant-keeping, faithful, loyal God who swears oaths that He'll keep His promises to us. It's no wonder it's loud in heaven. It's no wonder. And the way He is our God is 
tied to Christ and trusting in Him. It's magnificent. It's encouraging. Think about even the assurance that comes from that. You know, if, as I heard somebody say not too long ago, if you could lose salvation, I would. Because we're not the perfect ones. But if God is our God and He Himself has taken the oath, new covenant reality is sure in Christ. It's no wonder Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Stop remembering yourself. Go do more, try harder. Obey and you'll have clean garments. Okay, okay, we will. Man, there's a long history of we will. Do this in remembrance of me. New covenant in my blood. He's our God. By his own commitment, not our commitment to him. It's extraordinary to think about. It's awesome. Let's just all have a little charismatic moment together, shall we? Um, Let's move on. Number five. We're doing six of these. Five. What does it mean for salvation to belong to the Lamb? It belongs to the Lamb to never lose. To never lose. I guess we've already essentially seen this, but we'll see it in the text itself. But before we actually look at Revelation 7 again, when you die, what do you do with your stuff? The rest of us get your stuff, right? When you die, your kids fight over your stuff. We didn't fight too much. My sister's here today. It was a minor miracle that we didn't fight too much. My mom died and we got her stuff. When you die, somebody's going to get your stuff. You can't take it with you, right? You go to museums, you go to the the British Museum in London, one of the coolest places I've ever been. You can go there and see the whole world because for a while the Brits ruled the world and they stole everybody's stuff. Go there. If you want to go anywhere in the world, just go to London and you'll see the whole world. The joke is you'll see more of the Parthenon uh, in London than you will where the Parthenon is. There are people protesting outside saying, we want our stuff back. But when you go to the British Museum, you'll see exhibit after exhibit after exhibit where people thought they could take their stuff with them. And they amassed it. We can take it with us. The reality is we can't take it with us, right? We know that. Salvation belongs to the Lamb. To never lose it. Oh, but he died. You're right. But he was raised from the dead. By virtue of the fact that he's the resurrected Savior, they can say in heaven, salvation belongs to the Lamb. He can take it with him wherever he goes because he's not like every other faux Savior who's still dead. And so they can say what they say. Salvation belongs to the Lamb who sits on the throne, or to our God and to the Lamb who sits on the throne. It'll forever belong to Him. I love Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. He always lives. He always lives. And it's cool in that passage because He always lives to make intercession for us. But when we understand that He's the resurrected forever to be resurrected Savior, you say, 
it's no wonder salvation belongs to him. He can't lose it because he can't lose his life again. He gave his life and now he can't lose his life. Finally, number six, what does it mean for salvation to belong to the lamb? Number six, it belongs to the lamb for his maximum exaltation. It belongs to the lamb for his maximum exaltation. Let's look again at verses 9 and 10 and let's see some maximum exaltation. Verse 9, after this I looked and behold, after, after this I looked and wow, after this I looked and oh my, come and see this. After this I looked and behold, that's maximum language. A great multitude, maximum multitude, right? That no one could number because it's maximum in number. For from every nation, maximum. From all tribes, maximum. And peoples, maximum. And languages, maximum. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a maximumly loud voice, right? This is full throttle. Salvation belongs to our God. It's in unison with all the diversity and the unity and volume. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And this is, and I want to say, this is so chaotic. It's not because our God is a God of order and I understand. I, I, don't fault me. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just making a point here, okay? This is, this is so intense, okay? Not chaotic. This is so robust. This is so extraordinary. This is so moving. And this is so voluminous. Ah, thank you, Lord. Good words are coming. This is such a big deal. Never said the word voluminous in my life before. I believe in the power of the Spirit. This is such a massive thing going on in heaven. Get this. That even those who cannot be redeemed, join in the festivities. And I'm talking about angels. Let's keep going. They, they can't be redeemed. Angels can't be redeemed. But it says in chapter 7, verse 11, if we keep going, and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped, uh, and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. How about that? They, they, they understand. They haven't participated. They haven't benefited. But they understand like they've never understood before of how this great God is the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's all according to plan. And it's, it's extraordinary. Salvation belongs to the Lamb. And He should be honored even if He's not our Savior. The angels can declare. It's awesome. Glory be to the Lamb. Wouldn't it be great if we can, if we can just have, have some of this truly affect our hearts by the power of God and and, and have this change the way we think and have this change the way we talk and act. And wouldn't it be great if, if we would have a good dose, if you will, 
a good dose of, of this so that we would be different, so that Omaha Bible Church would be different, so the city of Omaha would be different, so that the nations might even be different because we're grappling with what it means for salvation to belong to the Lamb. It'd be awesome. We can pray toward that end. And we can catch these glimpses of heaven to help. These are great words that will be familiar to many of you. Capturing wonderfully what we see in Revelation 7. To God and to the Lamb I will sing. I will sing. To God and to the Lamb I will sing. To God and to the Lamb who is the great I am. While millions join the theme I will sing. I will sing. While millions join the theme I will sing. What wondrous love is this? wondrous love is this that's not your favorite song it should be at least for today because the songwriter obviously was spending some time thinking about Revelation chapter 7 and what heavenly worship looks like to God and to the Lamb praise, worship, adoration Father thank you for our brief time of worship as we've been able to study your word together. Thank you that it is worship. Thank you that all that we do is worship, honoring the risen Christ. Thank you that even now you can remind us of, of the fact that you're our God by virtue of what you have sworn as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together and we acknowledge the new covenant established in the blood of Christ. Indeed, you are an awesome Savior saving us to the uttermost. We're grateful that you always live and you always live to make intercession for us. We're grateful for these glimpses that we receive. Uh, encourage us today amidst our difficulty and our deadlines and our conflicts and all of these different things that we experience in this broken world. Encourage our hearts. Encourage us by your sovereign grace. Encourage us by allowing us to have confidence in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.